1: together at home. My name is Derek Handley. I'm an entrepreneur, an investor, a teacher, and a student. Each episode, I sit down live with an amazing thinker, an author, an artist, a religious or spiritual leader. We have a conversation to reflect on our lives and the world around us in these very surreal times. With all the uncertainty, there is no better moment than now to reflect on what matters to us and who we wish to become as we see out this pandemic. Welcome.
2: For so much of history, the more deeply we understood nature and these astronomical events and um, agricultural, biological botany of our planet, the more deeply we understood our god or gods.
1: How can rituals mark time and what rituals are worth pursuing to build meaning for the secular and the religious? In this conversation, we speak with Sasha Sagan. She just released a book, Rituals for Finding Meaning in Our Unlikely World. Sasha was raised by secular parents, the hugely influential science popularizer and astronomer, Carl Sagan, and the writer, Anne Druyan. And she draws on her upbringing in becoming a mother to inspire us to build a life of rituals to honoring our experiences, nature, and science. so fascinating. You grew up in a, like a pretty famously secular family. I mean, your dad is an astronomer and he's had a lot of influence on a lot of different people. It's actually how I found you. And as a scientist and a evidence-seeking human, your story and the book you've written, it's so interesting because in it, you talk about being Jewish, which is a religion, but you don't believe in God. And like it's, this conversation you had with your husband And the thing I found fascinating about living in New York and meeting lots of Jewish people who had a similar view, they're like, I don't believe in all these things, but I believe and I practice and I observe the rituals and behaviors. Is that maybe something that drew you to start going into this and becoming what the book was?
2: Absolutely. I mean, so I'm secular. I don't believe in anything that's not supported by evidence, but I do long for culture and holidays and celebrations and uh, connection to my ancestors. And that's something that, um, you know, is hard to find just purely, you know, science doesn't have like recipes and expressions. Well, there are expressions, but not for like when you drop something. Um, I thought for a long time that this was sort of something uniquely Jewish because, you know, when you take like a DNA test It comes back when I, well, I'll speak for myself. When I take one, it comes back and it says you are Jewish, specifically Ashkenazi. Um, But you don't, that doesn't happen. Like you can't take a test that says like you're Presbyterian or something like that. And so I thought it was sort of this uniquely Jewish thing. Um, And growing up, we had Hanukkah and Passover and certain Jewish rituals, but in a totally secular non theistic way, but as I got older, I realized that so many people of different backgrounds and different cultures and you know religious slash cultural um, upbringings or ancestry do have this. I mean the biggest example is so many people celebrate Christmas in a totally secular way, and I think our longing for certain markers that are um, the signposts in life over the course of a year, over the course of our own lives, is really cross-cultural, and it doesn't require belief or faith to to need that, to want that. And I think that the most explicit moment um, is when you lose a loved one. And I lost my dad when I was fourteen, and to have a framework that you fall back on in that moment is very useful. And you know, there were certain things we did um, when my dad died and years later when my grandparents died that did call back to our ancestors and to their traditions and certain things, many things that we didn't do. But I think those moments, those turning points in life, maybe loss being the, the biggest, really call out for some kind of ritual, some kind of meditation, some kind of examination of what we're experiencing. So I think everyone, even if you're very devout, everyone is sort of navigating what do you emphasize what do you let fall away what were you brought up with that you want to continue and what are you going to let go of
1: yeah that's so so interesting personally i find the um losing someone uh really challenging time for people who haven't got a set of built-in rituals and faiths and you see people um, even in you know, a Facebook feed or something that someone's lost. And the the commentary, it's like people don't know what to say. So they say things like they're in a better place or they've joined Grandma Josephine. And it's really, it makes me feel kind of mixed because I'm like, do they really believe that? Or they're up with the angels, these kinds of things that we don't really have language if we're not brought up in a tradition to to have a view on what happens after we die. And it seems to be something It's a big void for, for secular generations.
2: I couldn't agree more. And I think the awkwardness that we feel in that moment, I, I think so much of it comes out of an avoidance of talking about mortality when things are going well and right. when things are okay and everybody's healthy and putting it out of our heads and not reckoning with what we believe or what we, what we really think does happen or maybe the ways in which we reserve belief because we just don't know – um, and I think that, that that moment when you just don't know what to say and you want to make someone feel better, it's so hard, you know, to not just let something fall out of your mouth that maybe you don't totally agree with.
1: Right. And it's or funny because there them. is.
2: Yeah. And it's like, it's such a taboo subject, death. I think, you know, in more than sex or religion or all these other things that, you um, you know, used to be very, people were very shy about talking about, and or politics, and now we're much more open about it, um, but death is still this sort of forbidden thing, and people, I have a, a really close friend whom I adore who will say, you know, anything that is remotely related to, death. let's say, oh, I had to fill out a life insurance form or something like that. And she'll say not to be morbid. I don't want to be morbid. And I'm like, morbid is like hanging around like a crime scene. Like this is just like part of our experience of being alive. We recognize it's not forever. Whatever you think comes next, whatever you believe this right now, what we're doing is not forever. And I think talking about that, And reckoning with that um, is something that we, you know, it's very difficult for us. And if we're secular and we don't have an infrastructure for this kind of discussion and we aren't told what to say when someone dies, um, it's, it's very difficult. There is one Jewish expression that you say when someone dies that I think can be adopted in a secular way, which is, may their memory be a blessing. And it doesn't require any faith to say, I'm going to continue some tradition or some meaningful thing or some idea that that I received from them um, in my own life until my memory is a blessing to someone else.
1: Right. You know, you may not know this, but last year, or I think it was last year in the census in New Zealand, it was the first time in, you know, I guess since they started the census that more people identified with no religion or practice of religion than uh, any other combination of all the others. So we are, I know this doesn't carry for the rest, the whole world, because I think most people think, oh, the world is becoming more secular, but there is, you know, Islam's in boom times, like there's a lot of, a lot of product that people are buying in different in different places. But in a country like New Zealand, it really is moving towards a um, more, you know, secular or non-attached to a particular religion framework. And for me... I think that makes all this kind of work that you've been doing and this kind of thinking even more important because we're having to stitch together our own rituals to figure out how we mark time and create meaning and acknowledge and recognize things because we don't have a whole package of them handed to us. It's,
2: it, that's really interesting. And I do think these things ebb and flow. And there is this tendency to feel like we're all moving in a more secular direction the world over. I live in the United States. Many people are very, you know, range from fanatically religious to moderately, I guess you would say. And there are many people who are secular, of course, too. Um, But I think in terms of what you do in order to um, celebrate and mourn and um, mark time, I think so often we have to take the pieces of the rituals we were brought up with or that our grandparents passed down and examine them for what it is that is really meaningful to us in them. Because there are ways to carry on religious traditions in a different light and I think that when you what's so fascinating and what I couldn't get over as I was writing and researching um this idea that underneath the specifics of time and place and um exactly what's happening throughout time and around the world underneath all of that the things that we're celebrating are virtually identical not always but across the board the idea that um the solstices and equinoxes are these moments that um, mark celebrations, um, that the biological changes in our body from birth, coming of age, death, that these are the landmarks was so fascinating to me because it's so easy to look at, you know, a coming of age ritual in one part of the world and a coming of age ritual in another part of the world and think, Oh, these things are so vastly different. But when we look at them, Beneath the cultural norms, it's really about this biological change that then makes the possibility of more members of the group right. in the future, you know, available. And these are
1: all kind of, in a sense, pre-religious. They existed, people were born and people died, and the sun rose and set, and the stars appeared, and then were out of view before any creation or you know, institutionalization of any kind of religion but they are the things that rituals come from right the biology and the astronomy of the world
2: absolutely and um you know in a way those are the most traditional things is celebrating those without any of the um garnish of uh, religion or belief those are the those are the most if you're worried about hanging on to tradition if you're worried about not being the first one to break the chain those are really the things um, that are the oldest
1: right and you know we're just about to or are in the middle of one in, in New Zealand um, the 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 Maori indigenous people celebrate the new year uh, call it Matariki, the, the the Pleiades the Seven sisters this whole thing and you have a whole section in your book dedicated to these seven uh, stars are represented in like, literally, it seems like dozens of f- uh, faiths, traditions, myths, like it's present everywhere. But in, in New Zealand, you you know, here, as we've started to have a resurgence of understanding and acknowledging, martyri, it feels like, oh, this is a very New Zealand thing. When you step back, it's like, wow, these people have been doing this and noticing this and marking time around this time of the year for thousands of years across the whole world. Like, I mean, that's so fascinating.
2: And what's so amazing is that all of these things are just totally scientific. You know, they're just these, I mean, it's just an astronomical event that we're able to see from this particular part of the solar system. And I think there's something in that we have this um, idea that like, you know, facts and information is not um, uplifting and not the source of wonder and awe. But um, it is so often, it's so often it is the original source of our wonder and awe. And I think that, you know, if we can present some of these things that might seem a little bit dry, like this particular constellation, in a different way, um, we can tap back into some of those feelings that people really crave and turn to religion for, but I think are available through science.
1: So can you? I mean, it'd be useful. It'd be interesting to sh- share some of the some of the other examples of people using the um, the Pleiades, uh, other than Subaru, which I didn't even recognize. <laughs> so Subaru, the vehicle, their logo is is basically the Matriki logo.
2: <laughs> exactly, and I mean, all over um, many many disparate Native American uh, traditions have beautiful and sometimes hilarious stories about. The Pleiades. One is that it's seven women who prefer the, the Mono people of California, of what's now California, um, saw the Pleiades as as women who preferred onions to husbands, which I've just found hilarious. Maybe it's something's lost in translation, but it seemed funny to me. Um, and you know, all over the world, almost any culture that had a clear view. And and so often it was because of the time of year that it became visible. It also was a cue for some agricultural change or, you know, to start planting or to start harvesting or just the knowledge of what was coming. For so much of history, the more deeply we understood nature and these astronomical events and um, agricultural, biological Botany of our planet, the more deeply we understood our God or gods, and somewhere along the way, those part those ideas parted ways. But but I think there's something really powerful of this this connection that that does that seems so natural that all the stirring beauty of the world, you know, is also um, a product of scientific evidence and investigation.
1: Mm-hmm. It's so interesting uh, talking about nature. I was talking with another previous um, guest on Wiser, uh, Reverend Tucker in Kyoto last Friday, and he said something I had no idea. Probably you knew this, but in Japan they have twenty, they have twenty four seasons. Like, and I googled it, and I was like, what? I mean, they don't, they don't actually go around their world thinking they have twenty four seasons, but historically and traditionally they do. And I read them all up. Uh, there's a big list of them, and actually they break it down even further into three subseasons per 24. And it's all to do with nature. and it's like, okay, this, this particular 124th is the time to sow like radishes or something. It's like radish sowing season and other things like that. And it was so fascinating that they had kind of sub uh, you know, divided the, the year into these little pieces which were all connected uh, to nature and frost and other things like that.
2: That's fascinating. I wonder now, as our climates change, how how that that breakdown is is holding up.
1: Right. I didn't check. Um, so these are really big, like you know, big, bigger, bigger than us rituals. Like they're, they are. We look out into the, 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 the stars and the sky, and you see them, um, and they're collective. You also spent a lot of time thinking about much more personal rituals. I mean, you went even down to like the week, you know, there's the month, the week, the season, um, uh, the week. I think it's really interesting, the week. So again, you know, I never had a weekly thing. I didn't have a church to go to or somewhere like that. And I think most faiths have a weekly practice. Um, I notice myself, you know, I struggle if I don't check in regularly, and I think weekly is a pretty good one, with who I am, what am I doing, how am I behaving, uh, Why, kind of the, the bigger thing, why are we all here and what am I here to contribute? I can get lost, get into, a, you know, rabbit holes, and then a few weeks later emerge going, what's it all about again? I think the week is so important.
2: Yeah, I do too. And it's funny because it's not really exactly an astronomical uh, time frame the way a day or a year is, but, the you know, the months are – the phases of the moon-ish and it kind of breaks down neatly into the 28 days. Um, But I do think there is something about that that rhythm that is really powerful. And I think that those of us who are secular, you know, there are so many parts of our lives that we don't necessarily think of as a ritual, but do have the same rhythm. And like, you know, if you, I don't know, like a particular exercise class you take you know, the same day every week or you know, happy hour with your co-workers off, I mean, you know, on Thursdays or whatever it is, or, you know, like even like going to therapy, things like that, I think have these these rhythmic um, elements to them and these ritualistic elements to them. And I think that there's something really valuable about doing that and also breaking up the, the work time from the rest time. And, you know, this idea of so much of our, our timing with religious rituals is about breaking those those sections apart
1: right but i mean don't you think that say going to the gym is i mean what separates something that's just a routine and a habit from actually being uh ritualized like i'm studying habits at the moment psychology of habits and routine and self-control and it's all the kind of research and the, the, the things that people are studying at the moment around, how do you make it automatic and how do you make it almost unconscious? And it seems to me those kind of things are almost the opposite of what we want out of rituals where we want real conscious attention. So how do you di- like differentiate?
2: I, I think that's a really good question. I think the difference between a ritual and a routine is a ritual is a little portal in from one existence to another, you know, like, I mean, a big example would be like a wedding, right? It's this um, sort of theatrical event, and you go in, and you're separate, and then you go through the portal of the ceremony, and you're married, and it's different. And I think the things that we do that we think of, like, examples, like, if you just take the simplest route home from work every day, because it's just the most direct route, that's a routine. But if you go a little bit out of the way, because there's like a beautiful little bridge. And when you cross the bridge, you think to yourself, okay, I'm going to leave all the problems from the office at the office. And now I'm going to think about what I'm going to make for dinner, whatever, some small thing like that, where we have this feeling of going through a change internally. I think that's what really makes it a ritual. And, you know, coming of age rituals, it's like of course, you're not, you don't instantly go from being a kid to an adult or whatever it is. But we have this idea that, okay, now the society says you're a grown-up or now you can drive or whatever it is um, that feels like, um, you know, this threshold that we're crossing.
1: So that's really fun because driving home or on a bus home is and can be seen as a routine. But if you think about it in a different way at certain points where maybe something transitions as you said you're turning around the bend or something like that and at that point something happens or you think about something you can turn it into a ritual.
2: Yeah absolutely I think that's totally true and you know the thing about rituals is you know, old ones aren't intrinsically good and new ones aren't less, you know, maybe they sort of sometimes feel like they have a little less less gravitas if it's something that you just made up. But it's really a question of like, what Serves us, and I think sometimes we feel this intense pressure, you know, from the idea of like all the ancestors who had been doing this, and we should be doing it, and that well, oh, you have to do this for your kids, or you can't do that. And I think that once we let some of that go and realize that we're constantly changing and amending these things based on what's meaningful to us, um, we can sort of carve. excuse me, carve out something that's like a little bit more reflective of what we need and what we believe.
1: How do you, um, I think what people listening to this and even, even myself at the moment, I think, well, okay, I think I need some more rituals. I think I do, um, sleepwalk through a bit too much and the years pass and, um, people get older and people change. And I, I think I would like to think about creating some more, when when you've you've written a whole book on them and you've talked to lots of people about them i'm sure you get asked that all the time well, okay how can we we can't create stars and change the solar solar and nature, nature dynamics but how do we easily start to create rituals that don't seem silly and that seem authentic
2: well that don't seem silly is sometimes difficult and i don't know i mean some of mine are really silly so <laughs> i think actually silliness is sometimes key because it helps bring down your defenses and especially like things families do together. Um, I tell a story in my book about the alphabet song and I was um, I was speaking in San Francisco and um, it's a very silly story, but it's wonderful and it's brought my husband and I and now our daughter a lot of joy. And I was speaking in San Francisco, and this very dignified gentleman at the end said, "Well, yes, my wife and I and our son—we howl at the moon every night before bed." And I was <laughs> like, "That's so adorable and so specific and so wonderful." And so I think silliness is good sometimes. Um, but I think that you know um, that what you said of how you know the years go by is so much at the heart of this. I think the reason that the world over, all these disparate societies of members of our species have created rituals is because we are just trying to catch up with processing all the change that human existence is and this constant ebb and flow. And, you know, some of these changes are cyclical, some are permanent, and we're just st- reaching to catch up with understanding this element of existence. And so much of it is so shocking and not even in a negative way, but like, you know, when you see a child that you haven't seen in many years, you know, like a kid of a friend or something, and all of a sudden they're a teenager and you're like, how did this happen? And I think that so much of it of the question of what, how do we make rituals for ourselves is, well, what are the changes that we need to process or we need to get our mind around or that we want to celebrate or that are meaningful to us? And, you know, I think that the, some of the markers that are very traditional, you know, winter solstice time, um, spring equinox time, obviously different in different hemispheres, but those moments, summer solstice, you know, are these tipping points that I think really deserve marking um, and come so naturally to us. And so, it, you know, in, in, in the winter, when things are cold and dark, having a party is sort of just really naturally good idea. You know, those kind of things, a feast, a celebration, um, those don't have to be in the narrow framework or the thematic framework of religion, but just the, the natural coming together, having food, laughing, having a cocktail, those things I think can be um, really powerful, even if there's not a religious uh, uh, root right. to them.
1: What are some of the other, uh, other interesting rituals you've seen or heard people create for themselves and their families?
2: Oh, it's such a good question. I mean, there's so, there's a lot of talking about weekly rituals, a lot of weekly big family meals. And I think that that is something, again, that feeling of checking in with your surroundings and your what's important to you. And, you know, obviously now I think things are are, are much better where you are, but here um, in in the United States, it's not really possible to have those big gatherings now. But I think that when the day comes that we can have them again, they're going to be, there's going to be a level of appreciation that maybe we never had before. Um, so I think there's a lot of that. And one, one um, ritual that we've just started during this time of, of lockdown has been, um, you know, we live you know, in the center of a small city and we have started going, there's a national park that's like half an hour away and the facilities are closed, but the trails are open and there's hardly anyone there. And my husband and our toddler and I have gone every week on this hike and it's become this really meaningful beautiful thing for the three of us that under different circumstances you know we would go to the museum or we'd go to the aquarium or we'd stay in town and um that's been something that has really been been really beautiful for us
1: yeah. something as simple as that i think when we were in more restricted environment in new zealand in uh, march and april a lot of people including ours my family went for walks almost daily and um I I wonder how many people have kept it up because I know sadly our family has not and it was just as soon as the kind of the world opened up in our community we just didn't go walking together and I think these are the things where you have to make a decision that it's something you want to maintain um and it's really great to be reminded you know reminded of that um I wanted to ask you and talk about another uh uh well, I, don't know, I don't know what it's called, it's not a technique, but light and dark, you know, the candles, um, the sensory pieces, like light and darkness features really heavily in all sorts of different ways of uh, celebrating or commemorating and such a simple thing that anyone can do. Um, I know that, you know, we've started lighting candles, not for any particular reason, but more than we have in the past, um, incense, different things, you know, where where and how do those show up and how can you use those kinds of things?
0: The
2: candle is so amazing to me. I mean, it's so ancient and it's still so popular, and we use it in such paradoxical ways. Um, and it's like a tiny sun. you know it's like I, it always makes me think of, you know, all the sun gods around the world throughout, throughout different cultures. and it's like, well, if you're going to worship anything, the nearest star that we rely on so heavily, heavily seems like a really good. Place to start, and there's something about a little flame, a little mini version of that, that I find so powerful and really stirring. But um, you know, I always think about so in Judaism, uh, there's something called the yahrzeit candle. So, on the anniversary of someone's death, you light a special candle that burns for 24 hours, and it's um, I do that um, on the anniversary of. The, you know, people I have loved who who have passed on their on the anniversary of their deaths, and and sometimes on their birthdays, and it's not because I believe that they are aware of that, but just because it it connects me to them. And the fact that it burns for 24 hours, to me, is so um, poetic and and antithetical to the idea of a birthday candle, which is for people who are alive, celebrating that they've made it another trip around the sun, and they get blown out immediately. And there's something about that that feels so poetic. But yeah, I think that the idea, you know, Christmas lights, the menorah, there's so many um, winter solstice holidays that are... Um, you know, require making light. And there's something about that that's so powerful. And then the idea that in the summer solstice so often it's about the sunset and the light going away after being there all day and so much architecture that has been built around the world to observe the sunset on the summer solstice. There's something about that, those paradoxes and and those... um, contradictory ideas going together that I think is so revealing about human beings and about how we sort of need to observe the antithesis of something to really understand it. Well,
1: what, what, what does it say? What is all this, um, uh, it's not an obsession, but this connection to the light and the flame and the fire, what does it say about our relationship with the darkness and, you know, uh, lack of light or fear or that side of our our psyche
2: well just imagine you know we evolved from creatures who when it was nighttime you know and except for maybe a very full moon on a clear night um you know it was darkness and in order to survive we had to really be really be aware of what was going on and at some point we domesticated fire and it was a turning point for our species. And I think we're still kind of impressed with ourselves <laughs> <laughs> that we managed that. Um, and what, it, what a total change, you know, the, from being totally at the mercy of our other senses to being able to, to whatever degree, um, control light. I mean, it's, it's totally out of, you know, I mean, it's mythological
1: and that does it what about rituals with regards to things that we're afraid of or fears that we have or how how can we use them how have you seen them used
2: well i think certainly i mean just the the idea that death exists and that it's inevitable is at the heart of so many of the things we do and i think everything that's a remembrance for someone that we've lost because i don't believe that there's anything after, um, it's really for us and for us to reckon with these very difficult questions and this kind of, um, coming to terms with our own mortality. So the, the, you know, the idea of like the eternal flame, I don't know if you have this tradition in New Zealand, but you know, like at the gravestone of president kennedy there is a eternal flame that is constantly lit and it's like this illusion of immortality that we want to say to ourselves of course it's you know it's not eternal and 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 nothing is um but we have this sort of desire to say he he's he's carrying on in this way and it's so revealing about ourselves that we choose a flame to to try to communicate that um and it, I, it just seems so, so clear, you know, it's, it's so much about our relationship with our mortality and so much about our relationship with the sun.
1: Right. So fascinating. That flame is really a beautiful flame. It, it, it moves me a lot. You know, I think when I've been there a number of times to Arlington, and as you say, someone has to fill it up, like it doesn't just keep going, but the idea that it, 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 it's even there um, is, is a beautiful idea. And I think, um, that it is a flame is, you know, is, is just so fascinating. I think all of us would probably like people to make a flame for us after we die. That doesn't ever go out. (laughs) I mean, you can
2: imagine, you know, uh, I mean, you can imagine a, um, a society where that's, you know, every headstone or something like that is that's the symbol.
1: (laughs) Yes. So. What else? What else has happened in the world of rituals in the last few months as people have changed, their lives have changed, they're inside more, there's there's fear, there's uh, trauma. I mean, have you seen interesting things create or come out of it? Um, I mean, you have to have seen fascinating things come out to, to fill voids that otherwise were being met in other ways.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the things that's so interesting is especially in the first few weeks of being on lockdown, so many people, you know, the complaint was every day feels the same. And it's like that, you know, it's like that, that sort of gray area. And then people had to come up with these markers for, okay, every morning, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do a YouTube yoga video, or I'm going to do, you know, a meditation, so much of it is the stuff like meditation and yoga, which does come out of religious traditions, but has the secular modern life of its own now. And I thought that was fascinating how many people got into that. And also the, the cooking thing, like there was like a million jokes about like, why is everybody making bread all of a sudden? But that too, is like this thing of like, um it's a ritual, it's ancient. And it's, I mean, cooking is probably, you know, among the most ancient things you can do. And it's this, you know, this idea of like doing a project, it's done, and then it goes away, and you do it again. And I think there's something about that cyclical nature of it. And that connection with, you know, I mean, even if you're you're not farming your own vegetables, and, you know, you don't have your own livestock or whatever, um, there is something about it that it's like this grew out of the earth or you know whatever you're eating there's some deep connection with the earth and billions of years of evolution and now we're turning it in with fire often i might add um turning it into this other thing and consuming it and i think that our our relationship with with food and with cooking changed for so many people over this time and that so much of that is ritual too
1: right we have some questions that i think i will share and I think there are more coming in but the first um is a question around intuition and uh the question is really is there sign do you know from your understanding is there scientific evidence that explains our intuition and how we feel about uh things in that sense
2: oh that's a really good question it's not my area of expertise but I would say that um I don't know if, I mean, I just don't know if there has been, but I can can imagine an evolutionary advantage to why intuition would be um, a very, a huge selective advantage. But I also think it's, we are so prone as a species to fooling ourselves. And it's not to say, you know, intuition is always wrong or we shouldn't listen to it. Of course, there are situations where you have to say, okay, I'm I got to get out of this situation. Something's weird's going on here. You know, things like that that are very useful. But I think that we have to balance that with um, our ability to look at evidence that exists outside of us. And that tension between, um, you know, what feels true um, and what we have that can be supported by evidence is so hard. And I think that you know, for the things that are personal, for your own experience of like, I'm not going to go down that street alone, or I don't know about this hiring this person, they seem like not great, whatever that kind of stuff is. I think that's a situation where, I don't know, there, there may be some more room for that. But for these larger philosophical, scientific, medical um, things that we just don't have enough information to intuit, we just have to, I really believe
1: rely on mm. another really great um query probe around what uh, how how should we and can we use poetry words chants mantra i guess again these things that religion is endowed with and they've got stacks to choose from it's like okay you want to create a dinner to celebrate the solstice well is the feast enough? Like, should we bring some words to it? Should we bring some poetry, something else to make it feel more sacred?
2: Absolutely. I think that's a great question. And poetry is such a beautiful, enormous source of, for lack of a better word, secular prayers and secular, um, you know, insight that can give you that Chill down your spine when you feel like your brain is opening up to something you never thought of before. And I think one of the ways we see that so much now is um, in weddings. You know, as weddings become more secular, as people have friends officiate or family members officiate instead of religious officials, um, you see more and more song lyrics and poems and, you know, a few sentences from a favorite novel or from. You know uh, uh, some great speech, and I think that the ways in which people have started to pull from so many different sources in that setting is really useful inspiration for the ways in which um, you can do that for let's say your solstice dinner party or whatever it may be
1: right I think to to kind of draw draw towards a close i I mean what what is it about rituals? Why, why do we need them? You know, what, what, what do they contribute as we're wandering along in this life? Why are they so special and important? And why for you know people who don't necessarily have them, do you think that it's so important?
2: Well, I mean, far be it for me, if you don't have them and you're doing great do your thing. <laughs> like I, it's not, you know, I, I, it's not that I think it's mandatory, but I feel like for those of us who, um, want to feel this connection with one another and with the grandeur of it all and want to, as we talked about before, process change, process time going by. It's like trying to lay in the grass and feel the earth move. It's happening. It's enormous. It's impossible. As each second goes by, you can't feel the year, but then all of a sudden it's gone by. And I think that our ability to wrap our mind around that kind of enormity. Sometimes we have to break it down to the smallest things. And, you know, I think it has to be, ritual has to be only to serve the individual's needs, emotionally, psychologically, you know, intellectually. Um, And I think don't do it if you, don't feel obliged to do it um, because, because you, you know, quote unquote should. But if you, if you, like the idea. There are ways to do it that don't don't require belief.
1: Beautiful. So your book is out. It hasn't been out for very long. You can't quite remember the New Zealand subtitle, but it's for small creatures such as we, right? That's this is the one. Um, So anyone who's obviously listening can find it. Uh, And Sasha kindly agreed. I wanted to to play something because it's very um, special for me to connect with Sasha, given, you know, what I've learned and experienced through um, your dad. And I asked if I could just play a little uh, clip of some of the words and things that he's said that have, you know, moved me. And you kindly agreed. So I might just do that. Um, and then we'll we'll come back and say goodbye. But it's, it's just a couple of minutes. I hope you can hear it okay.
0: From this distant vantage point, the earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on the mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters Of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings. Our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves the earth is the only world known so far to harbor life there is nowhere else at least in the near future to which our species could migrate visit yes settle not yet like it or not for the moment the earth is where we make our stand it has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character building experience There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known.
2: One of my favorites.
1: It's so amazing. And it's been such a pleasure to have you. Um, thank you so much for the work that you're doing in bringing ritual um, and celebrating it and encouraging it. I think personally it's you know, more important than ever. So thank you so much, Sasha. It's for my being pleasure. With
2: us. This is wonderful. Thank you, Derek.
1: Thanks for joining us on Wiser Conversations Together at Home. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review it today. And if you haven't already, go on and push subscribe.
0: See you next time.